Hebrews chapter 12. And once you get your Bibles open there, I'm going to uh, ask those who can grab a copy, you should have it in your pew, of the Pillars of Truth. The Pillars of Truth. This is just a collection of creedal and confessional standards that the church throughout the ages has adopted as understanding being the collection of doctrinal truth from God's Word. And I want to draw your attention for our purposes today as we're coming into Hebrews 12, 5 through 11, to page number 33. Page number 33 of the Pillars of Truth. This is dealing with a biblical truth known as adoption. Adoption. It reads thus, All those that are justified, God vouched safe in and for the sake of His only Son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they are taking into the number and enjoy the liberty and the privileges of children of God. Have his name put upon them. Receive the spirit of adoption. Have access to the throne of grace with boldness. Are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. Are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him. As by a father, yet never cast off but sealed to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. Beloved, I want to draw your attention especially to this section where it says we are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. Notice where it says we are pitied. We are pitied and we are protected And notice it says, we are provided for. Now what's interesting is these old divines, these forefathers of the faith, where it says we were provided for, they cite the passage we're going to be in today, Hebrews 12.6. And notice the context they're plugging in Hebrews 12.6. It's in the framework of this theology and this doctrine that God has brought us into his family as his children, and now he is providing for us, he is pitying us, he is protecting us, he is, as it says, chastening us, but never ever will he cast us off. And that's the beautiful framework to come into our passage today, Hebrews chapter 12. So let us look now at Hebrews 12, where we're at, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, 
despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider Him that endured such contradiction of sinners against Himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not resisted unto blood, striving against sin, and ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of Him. For whom the Lord loveth, loveth, He chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom He receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then ye are bastards and not sons. Furthermore, We have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us and we we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but He for our profit that we might be partakers of His holiness. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of His Word. Beloved, Last week, as we came to the close of looking at the immense, indescribable suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross, which was intended to be an object lesson for us to reflect upon when we are under the persecution and suffering foisted upon us by others. That was the correct context and interpretation of what we were looking at. These first century Christians, they had come by God's grace to the realization that Jesus Christ, brother, was the Messiah that their fathers had taught them about. The Holy Spirit birthed with them the eyes of faith where they realized that he was the fulfillment of all of the Abrahamic covenant promises that were passed down from generation to generation. And with that came immense social family persecution. And what did he do, church? You remember, he pointed them to the cross, didn't he? And I concluded that by saying what we need to learn from that text and what we need today as the church of Christ, among many other things, is this robust and this refreshingly biblical theology of how to endure suffering well. How to biblically endure suffering And do you not see now, as we're moving into verse 5, 
how that this doctrine of suffering well as God's people, being his adopted children, is intimately, inseparably connected to the Lord's disciplining. And so as you see in your sermon notes today, that's what we're going to begin to consider. We're not going to get through this in one message. Because this passage, 5 through 11, beloved, I believe that this is what the inspired writer had in mind all along the way. You see, he was a seasoned man in the faith. He is exhibiting here, as we said last week or observed, a pastoral heart. He spent the entire letter pointing them to the exalted Christ and who He was on the throne being both man and God. He pointed to them how He is the great high priest and that He and He alone did what no other high priest could do forever and it can never be undone. And He knew all along the way that He needed to do that to get to this point to apply to them the biblical theological framework of suffering because it was going to come and they had to understand how it was connected to what the Lord was doing in their lives. Because without this proper understanding of suffering, They would move forward, oh yes, having the precious doctrines of justification, having the precious truths of the covenant fulfillments that Christ did indeed fulfill. But they would be tossed to and fro and be as if it were robbed of the joy, the immense privilege of being a son and a daughter of the Most High in a fallen world that hates his son. And so he comes into this text. And I, the way I want us to approach it today is just to get into um, what's going on in their lives. It's in verse 5. I want us to nail down uh, the proper understanding of why he's bringing this up in the context of the passage. Identify who the text is saying is the real author of all of this, and then come to a right understanding of the exhortation. That is, what is the chastisement of the Lord, as the authorized version says, or many of your modern versions says, what is the disciplining of the Lord? And then next Sunday, we'll get into verse 7, where it says, if ye endure the discipline of the Lord, we're going to get into the nuts and bolts of how to navigate through the discipline of the Lord. What are the various ways in which we resist it? What are the ways that we ought to yield to it? How do we navigate as Christians or the people of God when these things are happening to us as a result, or should we say, we wonder if they're a result of our own sins or the sins of others? And so we're going to kind of get into the nuts and bolts next Sunday. And then, I don't know if we're going to get to there, if we'll do it next Sunday, but definitely we're going to wrap it up by looking, as you saw in verses 10 and 11, I like to say if verses 5 through 9 are the meats and potatoes of the doctrine of suffering for Christians, beloved verses 10 and 11 is the dessert. Because you see the benefits. You see the fruit. You see why God's doing it all. Amen. So that's kind of the roadmap that we're going to be following here through verses 5 through 11. While we consider our sufferings as God's people 
and the Lord's chastening or the Lord's discipline. Let us first consider, you see in your sermon notes, the placement of this topic of the Lord's disciplining. It is in the immediate context of their suffering. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 he says, back up to verse 4. Remember, he's pointing up to Jesus. And what he was doing there was he was trying to keep their suffering in perspective. I know it's hard, he's saying to them, and I know it's difficult what you're going through, and I know you're in a perplexed situation, but consider him that endured the hostility of sinners. I I know that some of your family members are isolating you. I know that the society and the community you're part of, uh, they're giving you the silent treatment or they're avoiding you. But remember the hostility of Jesus, right? So why was he doing? He was keeping, he says in verse 4, their persecutions in perspective. After all, he's saying to them, brothers and sisters, we have not resisted unto blood. We have not resisted unto the cross. And notice he's carrying over now something else in that exhortation by the word and. Oh, and by the way, and ye have forgotten the exhortation. The word and here clearly is, con- is to, intended to continue the exhortation of these weary Christians to keep all of their sufferings in a proper perspective. And furthermore, by this, we observe that as part of this important instruction about running the Christian race, the writer is wanting them to point out that you have forgotten a very vital truth, one so essential that according to verse 8, if you're not re-educated in it, if, if you're not refreshed in it, it can have disastrous consequences. And that is you will refuse or you will take lightly the disciplining and the chastening of the Lord. In other words, what he's saying to them, as you see in your sermon notes, he's saying you guys have fallen into spiritual amnesia. You have forgotten. The word forgotten conveys the idea that they once knew this. This truth, this exhortation, which we're going to get in today, begin to tiptoe into. They once had this. They once possessed this. But something happened that caused them to forget it. And as you see in your notes, we can ask the question, how could they have forgotten such an important truth? How could they have succumbed to this state of spiritual amnesia? Well, beloved, I believe that the beginning of the answer starts with the doctrine that we looked at at the very beginning of this epistle, and it's the reality of the already but not yet experience of the Christian. They, like us, have been truly saved. They have been truly converted. But yet, the consummation of their salvation, which entails, as we read about it in the uh, chapter of our confession, is a final liberation from all plagues, of sin, remnants of remaining sinful tendencies in our flesh, that consummation hasn't happened yet. And so the beginning of the answer of how in the world could these people so close to the time of Jesus, so close to the teachings of the apostles, indeed having the apostles living around them. Many believe that this epistle was written by the apostle Paul. They would have known the apostle Paul. How could such people fall into spiritual amnesia? It is because they have not been fully consummated. They are still, and you are still, I am still, yes, redeemed by the grace of God. Oh, but how we ought to be humble that we are nothing more than dust. We are dust, friends. We in the West, 
We can become so self-independent thinking. It's one of our great strengths as Americans, but also it's one of our greatest weaknesses as well. We sing in the hymn, do we not, friends? This reality of how, yes, we are God's people, but we're so prone to wonder. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, we plead with Him, don't we? And seal it with Thy Spirit from above. Why? Because, yes, we're already His, but we're not yet with Him. And so, the best of us can fall into spiritual amnesia. So before we set in judgment of them, let us remember that any of us are prone to do this. The effects of this spiritual amnesia are all throughout the Bible. You see in your sermon notes, Elijah in 1 Kings 19, 4-15, we see there the effect of a crippling self-pity that Elijah fell in. He said in that text, he said, it's enough, Lord, I can't take anymore. Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. And we see in this response of Elijah, who was indeed suffering real things, friends. He felt isolated. He felt like there was no one else that loved God. He was all alone. He's expressing real suffering, painful heartache, right? But we're seeing in that expression, because he's fallen into spiritual amnesia, which we're all prone to do. What do we hear in Elijah's response? Someone who presumes to know how it's all going to turn out. Oh, it's just all doom and gloom, Lord. Your covenant truths are not going to be fulfilled. I'm the only guy out here still proclaiming the truth. Where's all my other brothers and sisters at, right? He fell into a state of crippling self-pity. He didn't know the outcome. He didn't know what God was doing in the midst of that. What else did Elijah do? When you fall as a consequence into spiritual amnesia, he focuses on the problem and himself more than the truths of God's Word. That's an effect. That's an effect. We begin to be consumed. It's amazing how that when sufferings and afflictions or persecutions come upon the church, boy, we get tunnel vision real quick. We get tunnel vision. All we can see is the problem. All we can see is how things aren't working. All we can see is the difficulties. And we forget about... God, who He is, and what He is doing. Not only that, but we know in Elijah's case that such crippling self-pity as a result of spiritual amnesia, forgetting what God says in His Word, it has disastrous physical and emotional stresses and physical exhaustion. What was God's response in Elijah's state of self-pity when he crawled into his little shell, you may recall? God commanded him to get up and to get moving. He called upon Elijah to trust in him and to obey his truths that he had already revealed to Elijah. God said, Elijah, become unfrozen. You're frozen up in your little shell and you forgot who I am. I am your loving Father. I am your covenant faithful God. I am Yahweh. Even in this hurtful experience, Friends, this type of self-pity that Elijah exhibited occurs when we assess ourselves and our circumstances in times of suffering as though it is not our gracious Father involved in it and is indeed doing something according to His sovereign will in the midst of our trial. 
But there was a, another example of spiritual amnesia, and that's ASAP from Psalm 73, as you see in your summer notes. ASAP really is a good example for us to go to when we're looking at our text today about how they fell in spiritual amnesia. Because the tension as an already born again but not yet fully consummated Christian, it resides in the heart of every single one of you. You have a new heart. You have a new love. And you want to be with God. But the reality is, is you're still here on this side of the glory in a fallen world. And so what you feel inside and what you experience, there's a tension there's a tension. And in Asaph's case, that attention, it was exasperated. And Asaph comes forward in Psalm 73. And like Asaph and many who have come after him, he wrestled with this problem that how is it those who trust and love God actually experience pain and suffering while it appears, and it's just an illusion, friends. It's just an appearance. Maybe temporary. We saw that in Zechariah, right? There will come a day. But it appears Asap, uh, appeared that Asap saw the prosperity of the wicked and thought, how do they just have a blissful life? Look at them, Lord. You remember he comes and he comes before the Lord and he's in a way complaining. We love you. We serve you. And things are not going our way. It's hard. While in the midst of suffering, Asap momentarily forgot how God's people actually enjoy God's grace. How they truly know something of his abiding presence, something that the non-believer doesn't have. He momentarily forgot, didn't he, of God's abiding support, his faithful guidance, and how that one day, when it is consummated, he will be with God forever. Now, does this make Asaph's spiritual and emotional reality any less valid? Come on, Asaph, just suck it up. Get on with life. Could be so hard on yourself. Does it make his hurt any less important to all those who would be around him? The emotional pain that he's going through, that he really is experiencing? Absolutely not, it doesn't. And that's not what these truths in chapter 5 are intended to do by placing suffering in perspective for us as God's people. There is a place of lamenting in our hearts and in our lives as the community of God. But it serves to demonstrate how that in the midst of real painful and hurtful suffering, we can, beloved, quickly, very quickly, it's amazing how quickly we do this, fall into spiritual amnesia and forget that God is doing something in and through any given situation that His children find themselves in. How quick we are prone to wonder. How quick we are prone to forget. Do you remember what it was that God used to get Asaph, his son, shaken out of that spiritual amnesia that he was in? He went to the sanctuary. He went to the sanctuary, brothers and sisters, and it was in the sanctuary when he came under the instruction and the ceremonies of God's Word, God's law. Asaph what? He was renewed in a right understanding. How could I have forgotten As if it were Asaph was saying, of course you're faithful. Of course this suffering is in your hands. Of course you're going to use this for your glory and our good. Don't know how, don't know why, but God, you're God. Oh, help me to worship and rejoice. And that's exactly 
the same approach that God uses in this text. Look again at the text. He says, ye have forgotten, what? The exhortation. What exhortation? The exhortation that comes from my word. So he doesn't point them to something new. He doesn't take them to some other place outside of Holy Scripture to bring them back in this re-education class which is intended to plant them firmly as an anchor in what God's doing in the middle of their suffering. He takes them back to God's Word. Just as Asaph was led back to the sanctuary to be re-educated, Brothers and sisters, when you are going through hard times, when you are going through suffering in your life, you know where the best place for you to be is under the administration of God's holy word. The spirit of God will use the word to plow, to prune, to plant, to water, to nurture. Whatever it is going on in your life. And how many times do we see in the body life of Christ when people begin to go through things, they isolate themselves from the administration of God's Word, right? That's refusing the chastening. That's refusing the disciplining of the Lord. And if you're truly one of His, guess what? You can run, just like Jonah. You can try to hide. You could try to shelter yourself under the gourd. But if the first whacker that God pulls out doesn't work, he's not like your earthly father. He has a limitless supply of bigger whackers. And he'll use them. And he will bring you to the lesson that he wants you to learn. It's interesting, as you see in your notes, this exhortation starts to begin to set up our framework of how to understand this word discipline. Uh, What I mean is, I think this is important because this word is used so many times in this passage from 5 to 11. Chastening, discipline, discipline, discipline. And, and, And children, let me ask you, is the word discipline among your favorite words? I mean, do you just doesn't does that just make you just happy when you hear the word discipline? When your father or mother says, you know, uh, one more time, and there's going to be disciplining in store for you. Well, that's an immediate. Okay, I better be careful here, right? And because that word carries that connotation in our minds and in our culture, it's very important that as we're leading into this, they will understand the full orbed meaning of it. And if you miss this, friends. I'm telling you, we're, we're missing the big picture of what the word really means. But I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. We'll get there in just a moment. But it's an exhortation, as you see in the notes. What he's doing, and it's a, it's a supplication. It's a summons. God in his word had already summoned for them to come and to listen and to know this truth. They had forgotten it. And he calls them, or he refers to them as children. It's, not, it's wrong to think you're kind of like my children, No, he's referring to them like he did in chapter 3 as holy brethren. You are the children of the Lord. And so he's already using, you see, this language of children. This exhortation, which is an entreatment to come and set on my knee, listen to the instruction I'm going to give you, to immediately begin to develop in their minds that their suffering and God's disciplining ought never to be understood as a sign of our Father, our Heavenly Father, dispensing wrath upon us. No, He's inviting us to come now to listen to the exhortation. In this father-child construction, which is further developed now as we move to the exhortation itself. Now, 
Let's move on to the exhortation itself. We've got the context. It's in the midst of their suffering. He's coming to this exhortation. They have forgotten it. But what is the exhortation? Well, to build upon this fatherly child um, genre theme that's taking place here, you see it in your Bibles. I'm sure you do. It's, you've had probably many of a study Bible. This is a quote from Proverbs 3, 11 through 12. Now, I've given it to you in your notes for a reason because the wording in the Greek here was just a little bit different. Look at Proverbs 3, 11 through 12 in your notes. This is the exhortation. This is the one that they forgot. This is the one that comes to them in the context of what they're suffering through. My son... Despise not the chastening of the Lord. Neither be weary of His correction. For whom the Lord loveth, He correcteth. Even as a father the son in whom He delighteth. Now the difference in the wording is because the writer's quoting from the Greek Septuagint. It was a Greek translation from the Hebrew. And so the words carry the same meaning, but it's just arranged a little bit different. But you see it's the same meaning. But notice with me for our purposes today, beloved, isn't it interesting that in teaching them about the relationship between their suffering and the Lord's disciplining, he uses this passage from the book of Proverbs. The reason that's interesting is because we need to recall what is the fundamental principle that underlines the book of Proverbs. It is a father giving wisdom, giving training, giving instruction to his children, isn't it? It's all throughout the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 1.8 My son, hear the instruction of thy father. Proverbs 2.1 My son, if thou wilt receive my words and hide my commandments with me. My son, 3.1 Forget not my law. 4.1 Hear ye children the instruction of a father. Friends, acknowledging this foundation of what the book of Proverbs is doing, we begin as we come into this exhortation of the Lord's chastening, the Lord's disciplining. We come into it with an appreciation that it's within this Old Testament genre of a father teaching, nurturing, discipling, and training a child that he is doing that to us as well. He's not this angry uncontrolled, ill-tempered father holding the whacker, using it uncontrollably. No. As the father was teaching his son throughout the whole book of Proverbs of how to love God, how to obey God, this is how we come into this exhortation. This is our heavenly father, how he's teaching us. Let's get out of the way right now. Who is the author of the disciplining? Who is the author of the chastisement? Let's confirm that as you see in your your sermon notes. Now, beloved, I don't mean to insult your intelligence. I really don't by doing this. However, it is important. It's an important step of interpretation and getting down to the root of what God has for you in this text. And it prevents us from abusing or misinterpreting what God the Spirit not only inspired, but has preserved and kept pure for us to learn from. So who's the author of these sufferings that are coming to them by the hands of other people causing uh, 
uh, affliction, causing trials, causing real pain in Asaph's life, causing real heartaches in Elijah's life. Who is the ultimate author of them? Look at verse 5. This is the discipline of the Lord. I know, I know what you're saying, Doug. Pastor Doug, the grammar. Remember what I said? The grammar is the sheath in which the word or the sword of the word rests in. It's the masculine noun. It means to whom a person or thing belongs. Who does the discipline belong here in verse 5? None other but God. It belongs to Him. Suffering coming to them. Men being mean to them. The men want to be mean to them. We're going to see in a moment. They want to persecute them. But the discipline of that persecution is from the Lord. It's the discipline of the Lord. Look at verse 5 again. They are, we are, the church are, the children of God are rebuked of Him. Meaning by they were under, they're of Him, or by Him, the Lord Himself. I told you I don't want to insult your tongues, but I'm going to bring this home in a minute, okay? He, verse 6, the Lord, disciplines. The word discipline is the verb. He is training. He is doing something. He's not an idle bystander watching the cosmos the cosmos that he created just kind of do its own thing. No, he's doing the disciplining. 7, verse 7. God dealeth with you. Another verb. He deals with you. What do you mean he deals with you? He leads you. He's leading you to something, child of God. Now what this initially means in its most practical and also its most theological sense is this. Here's the application. Listen closely. Suffering and trials in these first century Christians' life are not the result of mere random chances or the consequences of uncontrolled or autonomous elements in God's creation. Do you see that in the text? Who's the author of the discipline, beloved? Who's the verb moving, shaking, acting in the text? It is God. So, if that's true... It's all of God's created cosmos. Let me help apply it a little bit deeper. Another layer of the onion here. What about the spiritual realm of God's created cosmos? Well, what that means, beloved, and I hope you find great comfort from this, is that Satan and demons aren't uncontrollably running around and inflicting suffering and affliction upon God's children. In fact, the Scriptures clearly teach us that they cannot bring upon the child of God any evil or any affliction which God does not Himself prescribe for the ultimate purpose. Remember the context, the genre of the book of Proverbs that he's quoting from here? Without the ultimate purpose of training and educating and maturing and helping His children. Have you read the book of Job lately? Brother Scott was telling me he got a new commentary on the book of Job and that's a very dear book to him and of course it would be. Because who in this whole room would dare raise their hand and say that they have a life of suffering when they look at that steadfast brother? We wouldn't dare, would we? And so he gravitates to the book of Job and he understands there, brother, 
that Satan isn't this uncontrolled, unleashed evil that befalls him. No, he's on a leash. In his life, the leash is a little bit longer. In your life, it may be a little bit shorter. But always Satan and his minions are on a leash. And God's at the end of that leash. They cannot inflict one thing that he does not prescribe. And what this text is teaching us, be certain of it. You cannot run from it. And when you take a step away to run from it, you're already committing the imperative command of what it's saying. Do not despise the chastening of the Lord. But there's also, in the created realm, fallen men of this earth. And they may, and indeed they will, as volitional creatures, endued with a conscience, endued with the ability to make decisions, without any principles coming upon them outside of themselves, will inflict great suffering upon you. But as you see in this passage, if you clear away their self-centered and evil choices, which they will indeed make, the Lord's chastening prescriptive purposes are at the bottom of it all. How else do we make sense of passages such as this? I'm not proof texting here, friends. You can go throughout the whole Bible and find this stuff. Acts 2.23. We were just looking in verse 3 and verse 2 at the suffering of our Lord at the cross. But how do you make sense of a passage like this? Him being delivered, referring to Jesus, by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye, the wicked men, right, who have a volitional will, they want to kill Jesus, ye have taken, and by your wicked hands, you have crucified and slain him. Remember what I said? Move away all of those secondary causes. And what do you have at the root, brother? You have God's prescriptive purposes. Did you catch it in John 11 reading this morning that AJ unfolded for us a little bit there? What, what, what was all that suffering in Lazarus' life? His family members' lives. He went through the veil of death itself, and I'm glad AJ said that it was painful, excruciating. It was to glorify God. It was his prescriptive purposes for his family members Oh, but brothers and sisters, wasn't it also his prescriptive purposes for Lazarus when he came back? Could you imagine the testimony of brother Lazarus when he was eating at the next meal? If there was any brothers and sisters around who had a shade of doubt, he would have said, hey, I'm not going to do it in front of everybody, but after the meal, me and you are going to take a little walk. And we're going to have a little talk, right? Because you're missing the mark, friends. Brothers and sisters, this suffering that's happened to us, Lazarus, is going to show God's behind all of this. But dear child of God, moving on, even your own sins, which cause only, or which provide you, I'm sorry, only provide you temporary pleasure. They only give you temporary ease. They will with time. Ecclesiastes does not lie. God will shine a light upon it. Those little sins, those little pet sins, which may bring you temporary pleasure or ease, they will, in God's timing, as a loving Father, bring about in your life suffering and pain. And sometimes it's tremendous suffering. 
I have seen marriages shattered. I have seen marriages crippled in God's grace. They continue on. I have seen homes broken up. I have seen churches divided. I have seen all sorts of things amongst even Christians. Why? Because their sins are now being used by the chastening rod of God to do His corrective, prescriptive work in their life. Oh yes, we and they have in the household of God committed these sins through our own unsanctified wills. But these two are wrapped up, as you see, identifying the author of the chastening, the discipline, and the context of the chapter of suffering and persecution. They are wrapped up in all the Lord's wise and holy discipling training work. And when we begin to lose sight of this fundamental truth, of how our sufferings are related to God's chastening, we have already begun to take the first step of inventing a God of our own imagination, brothers and sisters. And with time, like the very mistake that is being corrected in verse five, or number 5, we will forget this vital truth. And it will lead us, perhaps, into despair. Or even verse 8. But on the other hand, a little bit more optimistic view here, as you see in your notes. If we, by God's help, embrace the truth of the Lord's ultimate authorship of all sufferings, capital letters, guys, all, all sufferings and trials, we take the first step in obeying and benefiting from and growing in what the command is. What is the command? despise not the Lord's chastening. Now, beloved, this imperative command, it is intended by our loving Father and being brought before their vision here again and their minds once again to avoid certain emotional and spiritual harmful places that we can, as His people, end up. I give it to you in your sermon notes. I'm just going to give you two that I think are the most prevalent that I see when we forget about the chastening hand of the Lord, when we forget about the source of our sufferings and His sovereign hand and governance in these times. The first is the autonomous human outcome. This depressing reality teaches that for God to be God, it means that He purposefully limits Himself from the complete free actions and subsequent consequences of men. And so it goes something like this. Oh, you, you have God all misunderstood, uh, you folks who want to go through passages like this and identify him as the author. No, no, no. Uh, God, to be God, he gives man complete autonomy. And that means even autonomy in his actions and what he does and the consequences of his action. And so man will sin and the consequences of those sins are left open to a series of fixed natural laws and equally so, those consequences are uncontrolled and they're equally unpredictable. That's, 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 that's how that works. And this is, of course, in contrast to what we're learning in our passage today. But what does this do, beloved? If you want to remove what the text is saying as God being the author, does not this autonomous human outcome view, doesn't it turn God into a divine being who has the power and the ability to stop sufferings in your life, which is caused perhaps by yourself, 
by man, by Satan, by demons. But he decidedly, this sovereign power for God, he binds up his own hands because he doesn't want to interfere with the actions of his creatures. Now, this view, if you're a Christian, those who espouse this, it has a bright side because they say, well, yes, that is what God does. He binds his hands up. And, and you know, suffering that's happened out here is free agents doing things. The consequences are not controlled. They're not foreordained, etc., etc. What do they do with Acts 2.23? We do not know. Uh, but, but they say, but the bright side is, is that when suffering does happen in the life of a child of God, the, child, or the father does come in. And he gives you help and hope, and he cleans it. He helps you clean up the mess, and and so that interpretation sort of comes to a passage like this, and and and, and gives it a therapeutic type of interpretation, right? But as we're going to see in a moment, it really doesn't offer you any real comfort or help. But there's another thing: uh, embracing the truth will prevent us from. It's the first step of liberty for those, even God's people, who have fallen into great persecution, sufferings, they're in spiritual depression. That can happen in the life of a child of God. They've fallen into the dark and destructive bottomless pit known as existential nihilism. What is that? It's just a big philosophical term that believes life really has no meaning. It has no purpose. And so do you see, friends, him being the author of this? of what's taking place in the life of His children. It prevents you, it puts up guardrails from falling into those ditches. I've alluded to it, but it's important that we've established the author, the identity of this chastening. What is the chastening itself? Well, I just give you, as you see in your sermon notes, the meaning of the word. It's translated three times in the authorized version as chastening one time. Notice this carefully, nurture. Chastening is also interpreted one time, uh, I'm sorry, translated one time as instruction. And what does it mean? What does this word carry with it? Because remember, we come into this passage and we have these negative connotations because of our earthly fathers and earthly mothers of their disciplining rod with a punitive uh, uh, end result in it, right? Well, you see there, it's the whole training and education of children which relates to the cultivation of their minds, their morals, and employs for this purpose now commands and admonitions, now reproofs and punishment. It also includes the training and the care of the body. Moving on to the definition, friends, this is what you need to come into when you see that God authors suffering in your life. It is for this reason. Whatever in adults also cultivates the soul by correcting mistakes and curbing passions. Look how it's used in other places in the Bible. Ephesians 6.4 Ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture. Same words being translated in our passage as chastening. You hear that effectual, loving purpose, prescribed purpose behind the nurture, don't you? Well, That's what our Heavenly Father's doing, friends, in this passage. That's what He's doing with sufferings in your life. You don't understand it. You will never grasp the deep wells of His most holy, mysterious will. But the text here is intended to fortify you against the ditches that surround you every time you turn around. 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction. Here's our word chastening translated as instruction in righteousness. 
Now, by remembering our context, as you see in your notes, the correct interpretation is that this passage is clearly teaching that God not only authors, but also uses all suffering in our lives to instruct us, to train us, and to educate us. Stop with me for a moment and think who he is writing to, the original audience. These are people who's had their homes confiscated. These are people who are on the run for their lives. These are people who do not know where their next meal is going to come from. These are people whose family is turning their backs on them. How in the world is this truth supposed to bring encouragement at a time like that? I mean, wouldn't something like Romans 8.38 be a little bit more encouraging when you're going through things like this? You don't have to turn that out to share with you. Romans 8.38, one translation renders it like this. I am convinced that nothing can never separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries for or about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. That's a little bit more uplifting, right? When you're going through the type of persecutions which they were going through, to be told, um, you do know that this is the chastening of the Lord. You do know that the Lord actually is behind all of this in order to nurture you and train you and to fit you for the eternal inheritance that you're going to uh, receive someday. That just kind of doesn't bring much encouragement. I, I mean, I don't know about you. But observe carefully that in the midst of perhaps what could have been their most severe trial, amid their most violent persecutions, in the storm of the multitude of perplexing choices that they were being forced to make, they had to make a choice. Am I going to stand for the cause of the name of Christ or not? Or lose my life? He points them not to the attribute of God's love, Beloved, he points them to the attribute that makes the one true living God distinct and separate from all of his other creation. And that is his majestic sovereignty. Behind all of this is a sovereign God who is in control. And through Christ I am his. He doesn't focus them on love. He doesn't focus them on this or on that. He goes right to the essence of what makes God God, the creature-creator distinction, and that is He is sovereign. This knowledge, the knowledge of a sovereign God who is effectively working in and all things for the ultimate good of those who love Him is what will anchor and secure our troubled souls from the crushing blows and the crushing rocks of all persecution and all suffering. You get your eyes off of the reality of who God truly is and you will certainly be crushed. The woes of this life, the waves of this life, they will drown you. They will get your course off. They will get your ship off course. You will drift oh so far and you will suffer the consequences of being out there in the darkness. 
It's why he focuses them on that. Because after all, beloved, a God who is full of love but helpless against the forces outside himself is the view we just talked about earlier in the midst of our, self, our, our suffering really doesn't help a whole lot, right? Okay, I know he loves me, but, but, but what's that mean in the midst of my suffering? I mean, these demons are, 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 are tempting me. Satan's tempting me. Uh, my neighbor's, you know, causing great suffering and pain. My, my own actions sometimes, etc., etc. But God loves you. You see how shallow? You see how flimsy that counsel is? The people of God in their most severe trials, they need to know, brother. Friend, God is working a work in this. You can't see it. I can't see it. But the Bible's full of examples that He's doing it. What's that going to do? It's going to bring your wayward ship back Back to the, the bay, isn't it? Back to the dock and anchor to the truth that He is doing it. God, I know You're doing it. Help me to see it. I can't see it, but I know You're doing something. Or the other view, remember, a God is full of power and might, but chooses not to get involved as a result of respecting man's autonomous choices. That wouldn't bring us comfort. I don't know about you, but that would breed in me contempt for that God, not bring me comfort. Ah, but dear friends, Know as this text is clearly intended to show you that in the shadows of verses 2 and 3 of Christ's suffering that the God of ours who are called Christians is a sovereign God who in all His wisdom and all His love He's governing all things in His created realms and gives special attention the text is teaching you. Special care, special training, special instructions to his sons and his daughters through their sufferings. This ought to close the mouth of all whispering doubts. It ought to quiet the wondering hearts of those who question God's providence in difficult times. He is in everything teaching and training us. I was talking to a brother this week and I said, you know, my language has changed as a Christian over the years and it's really not for the, for the better. I remember when I first became a Christian, um, I used to interact with brothers and sisters in the church and we would talk like this. Hey brother, what's the Lord been doing in your life this week? Sister, tell me. Or, sister, can I share with you what the Lord is doing in my life this week? And then, you know, time kind of goes on and we stop talking like that. Well, well, aren't we aware of the fact that God is always doing something in our lives? From the moment of the conversion, when the baton's handed into your hand and you start running this relay race that we've been kind of looking at called the Christian race and you're to endure to the end. God in every situation, even in the most perplexing, painful ones, is behind it doing something if you are one of His. I said earlier, how can a person despise? We don't want to miss. We're going to get into this next week a little bit more. I can already tell I'm running out of time. Uh, But how can a person despise the training, the discipline, the chasing of the Lord, you might ask? Very simply, by refusing to bow their reasoning their intellect to the truth of what this text is saying. 
Friends, we must not take lightly his sovereign place as the author and executor of sufferings and trials for our training and our correction as his children. To despise his chastenings or to excuse it as something else. Many do this. Or, some theological camps do this, demand of God another uh, uh, interpretation that better fits our comfortabilities or our political correctness about fairness. That's how you despise the chastening of the Lord. Now I admit this is a heavy truth to accept. Why is it so heavy? Because it grinds the self-sufficiency importance of a prideful man into the dust and resets the scales of the cosmos to their true proper order. There is but only one divine being and all others are ruled by him. Resets the scales, doesn't it? I cannot let you leave here today without drawing out some wrong applications and correct applications. These truths, if applied this way, are wrong. It is wrong to conclude that since God authors and uses sufferings to train me as one of His children, I should never protest against sin or evils that are done to me, but rather just bear it up and remain silent. That's not true. That's not true. Uh, There's a lot of evils being done out here. You're to protest. You're to be the voice of righteousness and speak up. Since sufferings are part of my training as a Christian, I should remain in emotionally abusive or spiritually destructive communities or relationships. It's not true. You don't apply this text that way. Because I've actually heard people apply this text that way. Suffering in my life are a result of God's disciplining me for sins that I have committed or that I've allowed into my life. That's not always the case, and I'm going to seek to convince you of that next week. But it could be. Could be. Here's how it's applied correctly. We'll close. God, as a loving Father, will use all things, especially suffering, to raise and to nurture me as one of His children and further conform me into the likeness of His Son, Jesus. Now, that's true. That's how you look at your suffering and Him being the author. Biblical lamenting in response to your suffering is acceptable by God. And furthermore, it's expected by your brothers and sisters who are around you. If you're so reformed that when you go through suffering, you don't flinch or shed a tear, eh, I think you may be taking your theology a little bit too far. We expect those around us to lament. We expect to grieve. We expect to hurt. We expect to go through things as frail men and women of dust. But ultimately... Friends, lamenting, biblical lamenting, what is it at its root? It's an expression of faith in God who hears us. We believe He hears our cries and He responds with mercy and grace and is using it to sustain us through a lifelong Brother Tyler training process. Every single thing is another class in the chastening school of God. Another way to rightly apply this is to remember, friend, God loves us too much way too much to leave us the way He found us. And so through all suffering as a result of our own sins or other sins or other people's sins, God will continue to perfect the work which He began at conversion. Therefore, we must in times of suffering remain hopeful, watchful for what God is trying to teach us. We sing in our old favorite hymn, 
Every joy or trial falleth from above, traced upon our dial by the Son of love. We may trust Him fully, all for us to do. They who trust Him wholly find Him wholly true. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are Your children by faith in Thy Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, O God, as we continue to go through and understand the relationship of the sufferings that we endure or called to endure in our lives, and, Lord, Your disciplining, Your training, Your discipling, Your instruction, will You give us, Lord, palatable hearts. O God, each person in this room has went through, to a certain degree or another, levels and experiences of suffering. And Lord, this text is, is not in any way to look at the Christian next to us. It's for us to examine our own hearts. And Lord, those deep and painful experiences that we have indeed went through. Lord, to recognize that in all of those, you are at work. God, thank you for your nurturing hand. Thank you, Lord, for truths such that we have considered this morning, which are a light. It's like the lighthouse, Lord, to ships out on a dark sea. It gives us focus. It gives us direction. It's a compass for us to navigate through, dear Lord, life on this side of glory. I pray you would help us, Lord, next Sunday and at least till we get to verses 10 and 11, Lord, and Help work out some of the mechanics, Father, of your authorship in our sufferings. Lord, it is meant to be a balm to hurting souls. It is meant to be an encouragement, O God, to those who are truly under the hand of the enemies of Christ. Uh, It is to be, dear Lord, that respite to those who are, Father, fumbling around in their own sins, Lord, and suffering the uh, the, the, the consequences of it. I pray, God, that you would teach us, instruct us, continue to train us through the truths of your word. We give you all the praise and all the glory for you are worthy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.